Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Seth Masters is with us. Let's get to it. Seriously, John, some weight to the tape. Yeah, big I mean, time. Risk, risk off. Some risk of Look at Yen, 110.75. Can we do China with Seth Masters? You should do. We should do it. Let's do it. We've talked a lot of, a lot of other things, including the second half reset here as well. President Xi has to have a second half reset with the president of the United States. That's short term for the Chinese. The, the, the stereotype is they don't think short term, and yet they do, don't they? Very much so. I mean, that's why, in fact, uh, the, the, the Chinese uh, central bank just eased off on, on the reserve requirements for, for banks there. Um, and, you know, their stock market has been extremely weak in the last um, few months. It's, uh, it's down a little over 20 percent. And that, that reflects a number of things that are importantly in a different place for China than for the rest of the world. So part of it is that Chinese stocks had gotten quite expensive. Yeah. Um, and so I think some of that correction were actually bear market just is a sensible revaluation. But on top of that, there's a big structural issue in China, which is that the corporate sector has way too much debt. And um, systematically, the Chinese were trying to rebalance the corporate <clears throat> right. balance sheet by having a huge amount of equity issuance come through the system. And I think that, to some extent, okay. the market's choking on that. But all of my reading says the, the assumption is it's a different rule book, and the government will clear, on a Hayekian basis, the government will clear that, that private debt. That corporate debt. The government's there to bail out everybody in sight. Is that feasible or possible? Well, it's feasible right now. And one reason why it's feasible is that you have pretty much a Goldilocks situation for a while where the economy is growing at something like 6.5% real, and inflation right now remains fairly tame. The problem is you can't count on those things remaining in place forever, and especially a trade war right now is incredibly poorly timed for the Chinese because it would really hurt them on the traditional part of their economy, which they're trying to transition yeah. smoothly to a higher value add, more consumer based economy. But they can't do that smoothly if they're getting crushed by high tariffs. So, Seth, let's take you back. I'm going to give you your old job. You're the CIO of AB Bernstein, and you know that at the end of the week, there's a standoff between China and the United States where they could implement tariffs on each other, and this thing could really escalate. What would you be telling your teams right now about how they allocate capital, given this current backdrop? I think you want to be very careful not to make extreme moves in the absence of actual facts, because right now there's no way to, to handicap a um, well, a Mexican standoff, as they sometimes yeah. call it, um, but in this case, it's a it's a U.S.-China one, which actually is part of a broader, you know, geopolitical issue. The, people have talked a lot about there being a Thucydides trap, potentially, between the U.S. and China, and um, you know, as as we know, most times when there is a rising power in the world, the current dominant one overreacts to that, and it ends up hurting both. Occasionally, we've had times when that wasn't, that mistake wasn't made. But it takes a lot of really thoughtful work on both sides to prevent those traps from becoming permanent problems. I think what we were seeing over the last 15 years was a lot of engagement with China, which was broadly constructive for both sides. And we benefited tremendously from that. 
The concern is if you start to see escalation and if the Chinese are put in a position where they have to think geopolitically about their U.S. Treasury holdings, for example, you could get a series of, let's call it tit-for-tat moves that actually hurt both sides, yeah. but where both have to play to their domestic political bases. I think at this point, if I were advising each of those two teams, I'd say, make sure you're at least talking with back channels so whatever stuff comes out in public isn't polluting the actual real negotiations face-to-face. And what I'd be talking about with my investment teams is make sure that you're well diversified so you don't have too much exposure to sectors which will be sentiment-driven if there is a miscalculation. And it just seems that, Tom, this morning, once again, sentiment-driven by maybe one key data point. If I tell you where the Chinese currency is, you can probably tell me where global risk is at the moment. Um, Chinese currency weaker global risk is taking a hit. And it seems to be that kind of morning over the last week where you just pick up on where the Chinese currency is and you'll get a decent gauge of, of where everything else is. Well, also, the, you can look at the gap between the Chinese currency as traded in China and as traded in Hong Kong, right? Yeah. I think right. that's that's probably actually the signal you want to look for. It's a traditional investment. Is cash of value to you? Are you fully invested, whether it's bonds or equities, or is Seth Masters comfortable in cash? Well, I would think of it a little bit differently than that right now. I'd say that you want to be fully invested, but you should probably think of cash as part of your fixed income allocation, and you might want to be a bit shorter. That's the way John Farrell looks at it. You probably want to be a bit shorter in your fixed income exposures than you would normally be. Because right now, if there's one asset class which I think is very exposed globally, it is fixed income. We are going to see higher rates, which is really a normalization of rates. And that's not going to be good for longer duration (coughs) bonds. Seth Masters, thank you so much. Greatly appreciated formally with uh, Alliance Bernstein as well. It's sort of ancient history, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of old news on Saudi Arabia and in, in the U.S. in oil because the news flow is happening so fast. I'm Rita Sen with us with Energy Aspects to give us some uh, forward view here. And Rita, my simple question, given the doom and gloom in the media in America all weekend, is Saudi Arabia beholden to President Trump in the United States? as you said, it's extremely complicated because I think we all know that Iran is at the middle of this whole issue because clearly the U.S. administration is going very hard on Iran, cutting off their exports, or that's what they plan to do. And I think what Trump said was that that Iran, he thinks, is the problem in the region, and therefore he is saving Saudi Arabia from Iran, and therefore Saudi Arabia has to increase production. At least that's what the kind of official line was, uh, given his interviews over the weekend. Um, Yes, I think there is an enormous amount of pressure on Saudi Arabia right now to increase production. However, uh, the tricky bit over here is that they are doing what they can. I mean, sustainable productive capacity in the short term is about 11 million barrels per day, and they are pretty much there. Anything beyond that, close to 12, will take a minimum of 9 to 12 months. We'll need more capex. We'll need more rigs. So it's it's a very, very difficult situation. And Amrita, the market just doesn't buy the story. I mean, Tom's calling it on old news, and it certainly feels like that. Um, Saturday morning, if I'd said to many people, yeah. in the moment, just in the moment, when the president tweeted, I'm asking that Saudi Arabia increase production, maybe up to 2 million barrels a day to make up the difference. Price is too high. He has agreed. I imagine people might think Monday morning we'd be aggressively lower. 
WTI is positive a tenth of 1%. Brent's down four tenths of 1%. Do you think the market just doesn't buy any of this now, Amrita? And has the buyer shifted from real concerns about not being enough, there not being enough supply? I completely agree with you. And I mean, I think initially you may have thought it, that prices might come off. I think the fact that the White House backtracked a little bit on that, uh, saying that they talked about it. And even the Saudi official statement was that you know, it is very much about keeping that spare capacity as and when it's needed. And I also think the market generally knows that the capacity isn't there. Um, and I think the bigger issue right now is I don't think we have ever ever been in a situation with such low spare capacity in this market at a time when there are enormous amounts of uh, supply disruptions. Right now, uh, all the focus has been on Iran and Saudi Arabia. Just look at Libya. Libyan production right now is down 800,000 barrels per day. We don't have spare. With Permian capacity constraints and therefore the U.S. can't grow fast, you just don't have anyone else who can make yeah, okay. offer. Yes, the, yeah. So, I mean, I mean, Rita, I mean, folks, I don't know if you're aware of this. We're at $80 a barrel. On Brent crude, seventy-eight ninety-one is going up. Rounded up seventy-nine dollars a barrel. Round that up. We're at eighty. What's the energy aspect call? Given all that you just told us, um, the interesting, funny thing is, our call even before any of this happened uh, or any of this got snowballed into such uh, a lens was eighty-eight dollars in Q4. Clearly, that's coming two quarters earlier, given all the bits that are happening right now. Okay. Look, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule out $100 by year. Uh, thank you. That's where I wanted to go. You're going to be the first person on Bloomberg Surveillance to say this. John Farrell on his other properties has heard this. <laughs> are we going back to $100 a barrel oil? I do think it's very, very possible. Wow. If we lose anywhere close to a million and a half barrels per day from um, from Iran and Libya, Nigeria, given all the problems we have there in Venezuela. Look, I do think in the short term, the market is a little bit oversupplied because what's ended up happening is that Saudi Arabia has raised production too fast and Iran hasn't gone off yet, which is why I don't think Q3 prices will necessarily do a lot. I think we'll be in this range. But come Q4 and towards year end, I think that's when things can be very, very, very tight. However, all of this could change if the U.S. administration stance changes, right? It just really depends on where we are going with Iran on this. And Rita, just quickly, can the global economy tolerate $100 crude? I think it's going to be tough. Yes, the economy is a lot better than it was in 08 to 2014, uh, but demand growth will start to slow down next year. I'm really sad of energy aspects with a big call Tom Keen and I wonder how many people are going to come out with a triple digit call for crude over the next several months uh, I, given the price action this morning even as the president ramps up pressure on the Saudis I, I will say this and it, it goes back to commodities work done in the Midwest the heartland of the country at A.G. Edwards a million years ago oil's the toughest thing to predict there's a lot of really good math on this John and it's like it's like because of the politics and because of its crazy tightness and all that between supply and demand it's just, you, you just go down in flames, eyeballing. I mean, when people give me a forecast, folks, I always, with great respect and great humility, say, yeah, maybe. It's not that they're wrong or right. It's just a bear to I, predict. I think, I think the individual delivering the forecast would, would say the same thing. Yes. I think my, my kind of pushback would just be, can the global economy really tolerate $100 That's crude part again? of the equation. I just yes. don't know if it can. Yeah. I guess we can talk about it through the show.
John Farrow and Tom Keen with us now, a gentleman who played for the Mexican rugby national team years ago, Carlos Peterson. He is with Eurasia Group, and we're going to talk about the Mexican elections. Carlos, do you take Ian Bremmer today down to the Guadalupe Inn in Bushwick and have Viva Mexico quesadillas, green, white, and red? Is that was is that the morning plan for all of Eurasia Group? That was the morning plan, but we have a bigger Brazil team, so we're going probably to have some feijoada <laughs> on the result afterwards. Maybe maybe we can celebrate with margaritas because I, I'm betting on Mexico. So I love that. <laughs> well, if, if the Brazilians throw you out the door at your age group, come on over to Bloomberg. Carlos, you've added huge, huge value on the domestic calculus of this Mexican election. This is a huge loss for the elites. What do the elites do this morning? In Mexico, I think I think they are uh, laying out the plans that they will have to operate in under a new, completely new environment and with a completely different views coming from the government. Uh, Lopez Obrador has been someone that has been very, very critical from the, of, of the elites over his, the past 20 years, and now he's going to be in charge. So, so that relationship is going to change dramatically, and they will have to understand how to deal with them. And I think we will be a pretty contentious relationship. Some businessmen will have will collaborate and will work well with 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 Lopez Obrador, but others, I think, are going to try to to trump and 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 stop him from implementing his policy and that's obviously going to become something uh, uh, noisy and, and problematic in some, in some instances. Uh, myself, Carlos, I'm an emerging market tourist, so I won't pretend to be an expert, but I will ask two basic questions that tourists typically ask. It's what is his position on fiscal responsibility and the other is what is his position on central bank independence? Uh, he has taken very fairly uh, orthodox positions on that. And on, on the fiscal front, what he claims is that he wants to keep the fiscal accounts at bay. He wants he doesn't want to increase uh, debt too much. Uh, however, I'm a little bit skeptic that how much he can do that because he has also promised a lot of different uh, spending plans that he has. So so conciliating both the spending side with the, with the, with the, with the fiscal front, I think is, is going to be challenging, and that's a, a potential source of disruptions that we can see in the future. From the central bank perspective, he has also said that he respects the autonomy of the central bank, that he's fine with it. Again, he has been very critical of what the technocratic class in Mexico has been doing over the past 20 years, and those are the ones that are ruling the, the, are at the central bank right now. So uh, the potential source of contention is between his administration and, uh, and Banxico could also uh, 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 trigger at some point. So I, th- I think there are potential sources of, 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 of contentiousness uh, along the road under these two specific issues. Mexico has to do, I guess, negotiations and all that. But what they really got to do is get their economy going again. What is the biggest constraint to getting per capita GDP or just good economic growth that actually assists the left? What's the what's the first factor for Carlos Peterson? I think that's something that uh, Lopez Obrador has actually a, a, a good position on, which is investing in the south of the country. Uh, Mexico uh, is, 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 if you look at it as, as a country overall, has had a very sluggish growth over the past 30 years. But if you look at its regions, the ones that have been really integrated to NAFTA have actually grown at very high rates and, and have been doing fairly well. The problem is the south of the country that is more disconnected, that doesn't have a strong economy, that has actually lagged behind. And Lopez Obrador has proposed to invest 
strongly in the south to, to develop a, an infrastructure program there uh, in order to, to, to trigger growth in that region. And I, sh- I, I actually think that's, that's not a bad idea because of these, uh, like the, the, the discrepancies that exist between regions, and that could actually help the economy overall to grow. So, Carlos, dare I say he might have something in common um, with the president of the United States. How are those two likely to get on? Uh, I think it's going to be a, 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 a difficult relationship, right? I think that Lopez Obrador is not going to come after Donald Trump and use him as a, as a, as a political punching bag in Mexico, a little bit like Donald Trump does with Mexico in, in many occasions, because Lopez Obrador tends to focus more on the domestic side. And every time that he's asked to talk about even President Trump or any other uh, foreign leader, he refrains from it. He says that he's not going yeah. to get into politics from o- other places. So I think he will he will be constrained until Donald Trump comes out and tweets something or says something about Mexico that Lopez Obrador will clearly respond to. Well, right? he's going to be so, dragged into politics on the international stage, whether he likes it or not, with um, NAFTA and immigration at the forefront of this administration in the United States. I mean, Carlos, how does he avoid it? Absolutely. He, he will not be able to avoid it. And I think that's one of the main issues that actually will constrain him from doing other things, because the main, uh, like the, the first uh, like a policy decision that he will have to make or deal with is the NAFTA renegotiations. It's going to be very important. <clears throat> yeah. And, and we'll have to get uh, like hands down without like right away. Carlos, let's go back to, you know, I guess Mexican chat of two twenty years ago, two zero twenty years ago. Can oil save Mexico? Those days are over, right? Those days are over. The Mexican economy has diversified significantly. Oil used to be uh, up until 2014, a very important part from for fiscal accounts because it would represent the, the, uh, 35% of, of, of the government's revenue. Now it's down to 18%. And really, yes, wow. uh, investing in the sector is, 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 is positive, etc., but it's not going right. to be the main uh, lead, uh, lead the economy moving ahead. I mean, manufacturing processes is in la- in labor arbitrage is still the same thing. Do they have a beneficial labor arbitrage, as Steve Roach of Yale University uh, would say, versus Asia? I mean, is there wage differential when you pound through the math at your Asia group or some other think tank? Is Mexico in the driver's seat of that labor differential with Asia? I, I, I think I think it is. I think it is. Mexico has been benefiting from, from low wages uh, uh, over right. the past 10 years, and that's one, one of the most, like, factors that have been able to make the manufacturing in Mexico very competitive and attract business mm-hmm. from the whole world and in order to export to the U.S. mainly, right? Uh, and, and that's actually one of the potential sources of risk from the NAFTA renegotiations because what Donald Trump and his administration want to do is make Mexico less competitive. And that's why they have been pushing for higher wages in Mexico in order to uh, limit the number of companies moving from the U.S. to Mexico. That's a potential source of risk for the economy overall and Mexico's competitiveness for sure. Carlos, I believe it's five months before the president-elect actually becomes the president. Is that right? I didn't know that. Is that true? Yes, it's a very, very long period. So it's, so it's uh, five months that takes us through to the end of the year. Do you think NAFTA gets done before really? the end of the year? No, it won't. I, uh, uh, um, I think that there are two main factors that will will not allow NAFTA to move forward. One is the midterms elections in the U.S. I think the, the focus on, on the political uh, perspective yeah. for the Trump administration are now, are now on, on domestic politics and uh, the NAFTA renegotiation is something too contentious and too complicated to deal with. Uh, in Mexico and the U.S. and Canada, inclu- including Canada, have not been able to come up like into to middle ground and to, and to uh, uh, like, make these more contentious issues that they have been negotiating about, like uh, solve them. So I don't think that they will be able to do that in the next three months.
Carlos Peterson, thank you so much with the Eurasia Group uh, this morning. Greatly appreciate that. Well, you know, one of the stories that we're going to be watching this week has to do with Tesla and the production of the Model 3. And uh, here to help us kind of make sense of all this is Tasha Keening, uh, ARC analyst on Tesla. Tasha, always a pleasure. Um, give us your, your reaction to this idea of what's, so, what's the big deal about ha- producing 5,000 Model 3s? What is, I mean, come on, 5,000? That's not a lot of cars. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think um, in, investors want to know that Tesla can sort of make the step from graduating from a startup to a full-scale auto company. Um, but, you know, I actually think that a lot of um, perhaps undue focus is put on these production numbers because um, these are very short-term targets. You know, at, at Arc, we're long-term investors. Um, even if they were to miss the production targets by, say, a week or two weeks, um, we're really looking at the long-term. And, and we think that a lot of people are missing the point that this is not just an electric vehicle company, it's an autonomous vehicle company, and um, we think that is the largest opportunity ahead of Tesla in the next few years. Autonomous vehicles. So you think that driverless automobiles that are made by Tesla is what is going to win over the public? Yes. So, so right now, people are so focused on production because the business model is this this one-off sales model, right? You, you yeah. sell um, one Tesla. But in the future, we think um, when they turn on autonomous capability through autopilot, this will become a recurring revenue model because they'll launch the Tesla network, their version of Uber. Um, they'll collect really nice margins off of the, the revenues, the per-mile rates that they're collecting off of the customers in, in this taxi network. Um, and uh, that's, that's, you know... Um, That'll certainly help cash flow and, and calm those concerns. And uh, right. we, we think that's roughly a $2 trillion opportunity. With, within this, and, and this goes back to our investments in uh, you know, your, your heritage with, with Catherine Wood in Alliance Bernstein is the x-axis. The waiting for innovation to happen and the waiting for big vision stories like you're talking about with Tesla takes time. Does Mr. Musk have the advantage of time to wait for that? You know, actually, Tesla, if if we're talking about time with autonomous, Tesla is years ahead of the competition. Um, I mean, just on electric vehicles alone, of course, they have um, the Gigafactory, which gives them more capacity than any other automaker. But um, with the autonomous opportunity, Tesla's the only automaker that has turned on this capability of collecting data off of the cars on the road. It uses that data to train its neural nets. Um, and that's how uh, that's how you improve a deep learning yeah, okay. perspective. Yeah, okay. The deep learning perspective is they're swatting black flies in a manufacturing tent out in the middle of nowhere in the West. How does, you know, you guys are high-end, fancy innovation technologists, again, with Catherine Wood at ARC Investments. How do you rationalize your big-picture innovation with the fact he's making these things out of a tent? You know, Tesla's always, there's, there's a lot of doubt in this stock. Um, and, and for us as investors, I mean, we, we think if you, if you look at what Elon Musk has done, um, it's, you shouldn't put it past him to, to produce a car, right? I mean, he's, he's actually capable of rocket science. They've landed reusable rockets. Oh, we did, um, we so, did the SpaceX. Oh, come on, let's be clear here. The SpaceX and the new manned project, that's not related to making cars, is it? 
I, I would say it's a great example of the, the feats that Elon Musk is able to pull off. Um, so I, I think manufacturing is a very tough problem. I, I think he's taking that very seriously. Um, he's, he's actually, you know, he sets these really lofty targets, but he's actually pretty honest in, in tweeting out, you know, that, you know, when they're in production hell, when they're having difficulties. Um, and, you know, I think the, the, the fact that they're ramping up um, automation and sort of just fine-tuning that now, pulling back a little bit um, to make sure that they have the right amount of uh, manual labor mix, um, I, I think that, you know, Tesla's advantage is really that it's built from the ground up as a, as a software company. Um, and that, and I think in, in doing that, I, I think they'll be able to sort of produce this fine, fine-tuned uh, manufacturing machine um, that'll, that I think will surprise most. Um, and, and again, I mean, I, I think uh, we really want to focus on the long term because if you look at these like monthly, even quarterly figures for vehicles, I mean, we're, we're much more concerned about what happens in the next few years versus what yeah, happens my um, point, next my, week. My, I get that theory, Tasha, but my point, Tim, is you got to get there first. Well, Tasha, you're lo- I'm, I'm assuming you're long Tesla. Basically, we are, yeah. Okay, all right. So you're, you're, you're long Tesla. Is there anything that would lead you to believe that other automobile companies like Ford, GM, and name the rest of them, whether it's Mercedes or BMW, that they don't have the technology and the expertise and the experience to go one better? So, I mean, so one, if we're talking about um, battery production capacity, I mean, no other automaker is there yet, right? And, and we're seeing these major investments in EVs happening now, um, but they're still not at Tesla scale. Um, and in, in terms of the, the software side of things, I mean, a great example is no other automaker has enabled over-the-air updates, these updates that affect the performance of the vehicle, not just, say, the mapping system. And um, if you ask the CEO, so GM was asked on an earnings call a couple quarters ago, when are you going to do this? And, I mean, they're looking at 2020. Uh, Tesla's had this for, you know, a couple of years now. So um, from the software perspective, I, I think that's, that's the other automakers, the traditional players' major problem is that they have to undergo this major transformation, and it's sort of like an old DNA issue where they have to transition to this new, new future where software yeah. really matters, and that's, that's how you get autonomous driving. All right. Well, thanks very much for the uh, for the perspective. Uh, clearly, um, you're bullish on uh, what's going on at Tesla. Tasha Keeney of uh, Arc uh, Arc Investments. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.